Welcome to State Bar of Michigan's On Balance Podcast, where we talk about practice management and lawyer wellness for a thriving law practice with your hosts, Joanne Hathaway and Tish Vincent, here on Legal Talk Network. Take it away, ladies. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the State Bar of Michigan On Balance podcast on Legal Talk Network. This is Joanne Hathaway. I'm a practice management advisor for the Practice Management Resource Center at the State Bar of Michigan. And this is Tish Vincent, the program administrator for the Lawyers and Judges Assistance Program at the State Bar of Michigan. We're recording today's show at the next conference in Detroit, Michigan. We are here for the second in a two-part series covering the wrongful conviction of Dennis Tomasek. Before we get started, Mary, please give us a summary of what we are here to discuss today and introduce those who are with you. So today I have co-counsel and my business partner, Takura Nyamfakutsa, who was part of the trial team for the second trial that led to the acquittal. Also with us are Dennis Tomasek and his wife, Kim, Dennis was wrongfully imprisoned for nine years until the acquittal in the second case, and his wife stood by him for nine years and was a huge source of support and motivation for everyone in being able to gain the acquittal. And today we're going to talk about the second trial as well as the effect of this on Dennis, his family, his wife, and where they are now. Thank you. Well, we're here to discuss that, and so we'd like to hear from whichever one of you would like to start. Well, Kim, do you want to tell us a little bit about the nine years that you fought for Dennis to get the retrial, and then what the retrial was like in terms of the differences between the first trial? Sure. Um, nine years, it was a struggle. It was, um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, we were very blessed in so many ways. We had so much support. At first, when the accusation comes, you think, oh my gosh, um, this is horrible. But we had people paying our bills and helping us, um, helping to watch my kids um, when I would go to visit Dennis and protecting them, just taking care of us financially and mentally. Uh, friends coming over and saying, get out of the bed. You're not doing anybody any good laying there, so it's time to get moving when I you know, have my bad days. And uh, we were very blessed. Um, The difference between the two trials, actually, the first attorney had exactly what Mary Chardier had, and he didn't use any of it. And I knew that if we could just get the new trial, that we would be fine. And I was blessed to have Marty Tieber and Chris Tieber um, take our case. And he... He fought like crazy, and he never gave up. He didn't walk away, even when the money ran out. He he was determined to, you know, fight for the truth and get justice for for my family. And he he did an amazing job. Thank you. That's very impressive. Unfortunate that you had to go through all that, but so good that people came forward and helped you like that. So, Mary, who do you think we'd like to hear from next? I think Dennis is the reason that all of us are here. So you want to talk to Dennis about his experiences and what life has been like since the acquittal? Well, it was very hard. 
walking in from being a tooling engineer at a plastics factory, building dyes and special machines to walking into a prison cell. I worked very hard to keep my sanity in there and just keep working to prove my innocence. And I really couldn't really do a lot in there. I was very limited to what I could do, but I knew that my family, my friends, were out there fighting for me the whole time. So I just, you know, I had confidence that, you know, this would change. And I knew that, you know, over the years in the appellate process, I got shot down quite a few times and it was very, very heartbreaking to have something like that happen to you. You're thinking you're gaining and then all of a sudden you're down again. It took to the Supreme Court to reverse this and it was the best day of my life when I heard that, you know, it was getting reversed. And uh, it's, it's probably the hardest thing somebody could go through in their life other than, you know, losing a spouse or losing a child. You know, it's, it was very traumatic for me. I had never gotten in trouble before in my whole life, so I didn't know nothing about prison or jail or anything. And to go in there with such a hard case it was very hard, but I always, you know, I told everybody there what I was in there for, that I never committed this crime, and that one day I'll, I would walk out of there, so. And you did. Yes. And you did. And Dennis, do you feel um, with some of your other inmates, as you had indicated to them that you did not commit this crime, were there other people in prison, too, that were making the same type of assertions to you that I am was wrongfully convicted and I should not be in here. Did you experience that at all? Yes, I did. It was a very big misconception of the public. They have a, you know, uh, a misconception that everybody in prison says they're innocent. And that's not true at all. There's very few people that claim their innocence. And the people who do are usually the people who are innocent. And you can tell by the way they fight for their innocence. So, yes, it was, you know, it was hard, but, you know, it was kind of an eye-opener to the people who I thought were innocent. But it's not like people say that everybody claims they're innocent because most of them claim they weren't yeah. innocent. Well, you do hear of those experiences, too, where inmates sometimes do make confessions to fellow inmates even of crimes that they are not in prison for at that time. So, I, I, I think a lot of that is a lot of propaganda from, you know, a lot of different sources. I really didn't see that so much mm -hmm. when I was incarcerated, but, you know, it, it may happen, but I didn't really witness it. So it was a very traumatic experience, mm -hmm. to say the least. But, you know, I stood strong and, you know, God was with me the whole time, took care of me. And I was very grateful for everybody and my wife and my children and all my friends who stood by me this whole time. I mean, you know, people don't realize just a little letter in the mail, how that brings up your spirits every day and keeps you going. You know, to know that there's people out there that, you know, love you and want you home. Mm -hmm. um, very traumatic to just get that letter and feel so good about just a little piece of paper, you know? Mm -hmm. it's, it's, 
it was nothing I experienced in my life before, mm -hmm. you know? So it really brings the whole thing of life right in front of you. Mm -hmm. To have your whole life taken away in a matter of two seconds. Mm -hmm. And yet the messages you got from people who were out there and believed in you and were taking the time to write to you and to reach out to you, it sounds like that helped you enormously. Oh, yes. Yes. 100%. Yes. And, you know, a lot of my friends would write me and they go, we don't really know what to write, you know? So we'll just write our daily events of what's happening in our life. Yes. So, and that's what they did. And it was mm -hmm. very, you know, it was very good for me because that felt like I was still part of their life. Yes. You know, yes. so. And they yes. hadn't forgotten you. And then you had a group of passionate attorneys who were working with everything they could put into it. And this is when Marty and Chris were working on the appeals all those years. Yes. And it was very hard for them because, you know, they thought for sure that they could turn this around in a shorter amount of time. But they also let me know in the beginning that this is not an easy job. Uh, yeah. Post convictions are very, very hard to turn around. Yes. And that, you know, don't get my hopes up. But the hardest part, I think, was when in the appellate stages of it, in the infant stages of the case, when, you know, I thought I was going up to a plateau and something was going to happen, and then just boom, no. Mm -hmm. I and, imagine. And, and, and then the time period for all this to take place is years. Yes. You know, it's not like, you know, we're used to, oh, well, if something happens, we can change that in a matter of, you know, you know an right. hour. No, it's this years. This is years. Yeah. You know, and then every time that you're shot down, it's just like, you know, it just it's takes be, all the winds out, out right. of your sails. And your hopes are raised, and then it's, you know it's going to be years again. Right, Before exactly. you get another chance. Exactly. Well, and this was eight years to be exact. Is that correct? Well, and I know, nine, I know nine. Marty and Chris had indicated that they thought that that was basically an unprecedented period of time for an appellate process, so... That's quite a story. It is quite a story. Mary, could you share with us the legal part of the story and, and how you came into it and what you saw and what you think you did that made a difference? Sure. So originally when the conviction was reversed, Dennis had another lawyer. And Marty Tiber, for anyone who knows him, is extremely passionate and very involved in his cases. So he'd contacted this other lawyer and said, we've done all this work, right? We know witnesses who you should speak with. We have evidence that you should seek out. And I can provide this to you in a very well-organized fashion. And if you're a trial litigator, to have an appellate lawyer hand that to you, I, I mean, I would, if I could do a cartwheel, I would do a cartwheel. <laughs> I mean, it's just amazing. But the lawyer who was working on the case was apparently really busy. And he said to Marty, essentially like, and I, I believe the exact quote was, dude, I don't have time for you. So Marty said, absolutely not. So he called the Tomasics and said, you need another lawyer. And I've known Marty for a long time. I respect him a lot. And he called me and said, you've got to take this case or you have to meet with them. You've got to take the case. He's factually innocent. I can give you so much to get you ready for trial and you have to do it. And I respect Marty so greatly that I thought if Marty Tiber is telling me this guy is innocent. This guy is innocent. So 
quite frankly, they couldn't afford our fees, but I met with Takura and the other trial team and said, you know, we're going to be doing this and really, you know, putting a lot into it and, and not being compensated financially, but I really want to do it. And everybody was 100% on board. We had met with Kim, who was amazing. So for nine years, she had documented so many facets of this case. So in addition to getting this amazing file from Marty and Chris Tiber, we got from Kim boxes of going through transcripts and her graphing out inconsistencies and going through police reports and having done Freedom of Information Act requests and putting all of this together for us and then saying, like, look it, here are some things that you may or may not be able to use. So we were able to use a lot of it. Some of it we didn't believe would you know, advance the ball just because it would be so much minutia. But it was amazing. So we met with Kim. We absolutely loved her. We had met with her son, Ethan, as well. We met with Dennis, really liked him. And then we just started working on the case. And we worked on it for about a year before we went to trial. And really, any trial lawyer will tell you, it is boots on the ground. So Takura spent, I don't know how many weekends, tracking down witnesses, literally all over the country, from Alaska to Florida to Colorado to Michigan, uh, meeting these people at their homes. A couple of witnesses who didn't know Dennis, former teachers of the complainant, didn't necessarily want to be involved. He literally went to their houses, convinced them that they had to be involved. They had information that was relevant. And so I think it was just an amazing and obviously I'm biased but because I was a part of it, but it was an amazing trial team who put the hours in and fought for Dennis the same way we would for any client. Okay, Takura, can you tell us, I know Mary had indicated you did a lot of the legwork with regard to the witnesses. And one of the things Tish and I talked about in segment one when we were covering this particular, the circumstance uh, we talked about how we were rel- we were amazed because memories can wane, people move away, it can be hard. Um, so can you share some of the experiences that you had with the witnesses that you would like to share? Certainly. So again, as Mary just said, Kim did a lot of work for us. So before I actually spoke with the majority of the witnesses, I knew about them, where they lived, <laughs> who their spouses were. But meeting with a lot of them in their homes helped. And just telling a little bit about Dennis's story also helped some who absolutely had no interest in speaking to me. I knew I was calling the right number, but at some point I was questioning myself. Like, my goodness, are my fingers that fat? Is this not, <laughs> is this not a six? Am I dyslexic? Did I actually push a nine? But ultimately, the one witness who comes to mind, you know who I'm talking about, I was just fortunate enough to speak with a friend of hers who liked me and convinced her so that when I called her again and got an opportunity to tell her just a little bit about Dennis, I was able to convince her to come on board and go ahead and testify. And again, a lot of these people didn't know Dennis, so it's not like they were testifying for somebody they liked, saying what they thought they needed to. Um, I remember listening to the story in Mary's office. I was aghast. I couldn't believe it. Then when I went to the Tomasic household and met Kim and her family, instantly, some people grow on you, but instantly I fell in love with it. They took me around to a lot of the places where a lot of these things happened, where the kids grew up, and very early on I became ingrained. I spent six weekends. My mother lives in Grand Rapids, so I was staying at her home. And even though I was in her home those weekends, I probably only saw her for a grand total of 
two hours because I was out and about meeting people at our satellite office in their homes and coffee shops and so on. So meeting people where they were comfortable and I think they saw the passion. They saw the passion. I was persistent. I emailed, called, followed up, spoke with people after hours and a lot of them remarked, my goodness gracious, it's after 5 p.m. You're calling me and following up. So I think they saw that we were putting a lot into this. And uh, like I often say, attitude is contagious. You want to make sure yours is worth catching. Them seeing how passionate we were, I think, helped bring many of them around. Wonderful. So you indicated some of these witnesses, though I'm a bit intrigued, some of these witnesses had never met Dennis before. So who would these witnesses be then without naming names? But Right. So uh, the complainant's counselor, one of his school teachers, those are two people who didn't even know the name. I had to say his name four times and they said, no, I've, I've never heard the name before. And uh, there were a few others, but those are the ones that come to mind uh, right see. away. Those witnesses were more, again, associated with the complainant and brought up issues that related to him. Mm-hmm. The witnesses who had lived in the neighborhood either as children or adults or who worked with Dennis obviously knew him, although some of the children said they knew Mrs. Tomasic because she was a stay-at-home mom and she was always there. They knew Mr. Tomasic because he might be around every now and then. They might see him on the weekend, but he might be outside working on a car. But some of them said, look at in all the years that they played with Ethan, they might have seen Mr. Tomasic once or twice, but they saw Mrs. Tomasic every day, which was in such stark contrast from what the complainant had said when he indicated that um, these incidents had happened pretty much every day after school during a two and a half year time frame, and we were able to show that he was at work. So he just couldn't have committed them. Well, and what strikes me too is when you're saying that Kim was a stay-at-home mom too, she would have been there all of the time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if, uh, you know, all these contentions would you know, obviously it would have been very difficult because you were a stay-at-home mom, so I'm sure that helped with the defense. Takura did a great job in showing the jury how small the house was. So this wasn't a mansion where you might be able to be in a wing of the home and no one would know you were there. The bedroom where this allegedly happened actually faced the driveway in the street. So with kids playing outside in the Tomasic household, a lot of kids played outside at, you would be able to see right into the room. You'd be able to hear anything that was going on. You'd be able to hear these screams that were allegedly happening. We were also able to show through photographs that the bus stop was at the end of the driveway. So when the complainant was able to say, well, I know there are red bunk beds in the room and trophies, you could see that from the end of the driveway where the kids congregated for the bus stop. So you could look right in and we took photographs you could see clearly into that bedroom. But Takura handled a lot of those witnesses and showed visually with a tape measure and other things in the courtroom how small the house was. We had a lot of photographs as well. Again, to point out, you'd have to believe not just that Dennis committed these offenses, but that his wife was there and turned a blind eye to it, and that also their two children were in the home and no one ever said a word. And it just is so outrageous, even if we didn't have him placed at work during the time, that it it just wasn't true. And then we also had the added facts of he literally was not home. So you, your legal team really, and the Timors really went out of their way to bring all the facts into the courtroom 
and then it was thrown out. That conviction was thrown out, and you were freed. The conviction actually wasn't thrown wasn't out, just thrown to out. be technical. It was, it was, you were retried. Right, Excuse he was, me. right. So the Michigan Supreme Court reversed the conviction, okay. which reversed paved the, the way for a second trial. Okay. The prosecutor's office decided they wanted to still go forward, despite the evidence that had been presented to them by the Tebers. So we had a second trial, which lasted the better part of two weeks, the jury acquitted Dennis after 19 minutes. Okay. They took one vote. They all voted not guilty. The only reason it took 19 minutes was because they had to use the bathroom. And they showed us afterwards. They had a styrofoam cup. They all wrote down on a sheet of paper, guilty or not guilty. And they all voted not guilty. And they showed us the cup where they had all taken one vote voted not guilty, and then they buzzed. We thought they wanted the exhibits, and then the clerk told us, no, they had a verdict, and they came out, and they acquitted him. If I may add, I know I spent a lot of time tracking down witnesses and so on, but Kim, my goodness, she helped us help Dennis. Certainly, we had witnesses who testified about, you know, what the complainant did not do, where he was, and so on. But when he claimed, for example, that he was in their basement playing a particular gaming system, she had the original receipt showing that it wasn't purchased for years after. Mm -hmm. These bunk beds that he claimed he saw, we had the receipts because Kim saved these for us and we were able to show that all these claims he was making were not true. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the credit goes to Kim for everything that she kept and allowed us to present as exhibits. And not just purchased by then, but the gaming system hadn't even been manufactured. So the gaming system wasn't manufactured for two years after this complainant had said, and he was specific on the year. So again, I echo Takura's sentiment that Kim had so many tangible receipts and objects that we could bring in to show the jury that these claims just weren't true. Well, I think maybe you have another potential... uh team member here for your legal team. I think, I think so, too. To Lansing. I think she's a natural. An investigator. Well, we have another case with uh, the same trial lawyer, same judge, and same former prosecutor. So we may be bringing there him on go. board on you that as need we her fight help. off. You might need her help. Oh, my goodness. I think we could talk about this for three hours. There's so much. One thing we did want to ask you about, if each of you or both of you would like to talk and Acquaint us with the Wrongful Imprisonment Compensation Act. So that was an act that was passed by the legislature to try and compensate individuals who'd been wrongfully imprisoned. So the case either needs to have been dismissed after a conviction was reversed or an individual has to have been acquitted at a retrial. But what most people don't realize is it's not automatic. People think that you're going to get $50,000 a year for each year you were imprisoned, and that just automatically comes to you. It doesn't. You have to file a fairly extensive complaint and detail out the new evidence that shows that the individual is innocent. And that's what we've done for Dennis. Then it's up to the attorney general, and they do consult with the county prosecutor and the complainant, and an assault of crime has to be notified whether they're going to fight that award or not. If they choose to fight that award, it goes to the court of claims, and then an argument has to be made, and the court of claims can say yes or no, whether they're going to award that, and then it would be appealed up the ladder. There are individuals who have been exonerated who are not receiving compensation. The Court of Claims has denied that to them. 
And I know those are being appealed. What's significant for Dennis is he now is listed on the National Registry of Exonerations, which is a joint project through U of M, MSU, and the University of California. And they list exonerations very similar to Dennis's, where new evidence unequivocally shows that a person did not commit the offense. And we really hope that the attorney general does not spend tax dollars fighting this. If they choose to do so, so be it. We'll definitely fight it out. We think that we would prevail and we'll never stop fighting for Dennis. But after all his family has been through, we certainly hope that they look at this and realize that a wrongful conviction occurred and a man spent nine years in prison when he never should have spent nine minutes in prison. Well, it looks like we've reached the end of our program. I want to thank all of our guests for joining us today. If our listeners have any questions or wish to follow up with you, how can they reach you, Mimi Mary? We have a website. Our law firm is Chartier and Yamfakutsa, which, of course, those are the common spellings of both of those names. But our website is www.cndefenders.com, and we can be reached through email or telephone. Thank you. And our number, if I may add, is 517-885-3305. Thank you. This has been another edition of the State Bar of Michigan On Balance podcast. I'm Joanne Hathaway. And I'm Tish Vincent. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the State Bar of Michigan On Balance podcast. Brought to you by the State Bar of Michigan and produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com, subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS, find the State Bar of Michigan and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or download Legal Talk Network's free app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network or the State Bar of Michigan or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.